that's not working. There we are. Hey, all right, cool. Thank you. Um, so what I am interested in is seeing uh, kind of this better statement from A.W. Tozer, who says this, whatever comes into your mind about God is what is most important about you. All right, whatever comes into your mind, whatever you focus on, your mind's eye or your actual physical eyes, what we choose to gaze on says a ton about us, a ton about God, uh, and a ton about how we're going to view the world and how we're going to interact in it. And uh, so we've been tracking in this series. We're in our third week of worship here, worship in spirit and truth. And what I want us to do is we're going to direct our attention to four snapshots of worship. All right. Previously, we've unpacked in this series how all of us are divine image bearing worshipers, that every person has this divine wiring to worship someone or something, to give our adoration, our allegiance, uh, our allegiance to someone or something. And so with that, Jesus's vision for worship is moving us that we would worship the one true God with all our hearts, all our minds, all our strengths, and all our, uh, all our mind. Yeah, mind, heart, strength, and soul. There we are. Uh, and that's Jesus' vision for worship, all right? And so in this, uh, we're going to get four new snapshots of worship uh, to, to continue to shape us and form us. Uh, Jacob, why don't you head on up here? We, uh, Jacob, our creative arts director, is also going to co-teach with me. So we're going to kind of go back and forth with a few different snapshots. So if you've got a Bible, pull it out. Uh, let's go to Romans chapter 12. We've got some in the backs of those pews. We're also going to have words on the screen here as well. Now, Romans is hands down Paul's greatest kind of theological, all-encompassing uh, work in all of his letters of the Bible. He writes about 12 or 13 uh, in the Bible, but the Romans is by far the, the most that is kind of over-encompassing. All right, so we're jumping into chapter 12, deep into the letter where Paul says this. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. All right, there's a lot here. Uh, worship is front and center, right? In, in this statement, he commands, he compels, he urges us to offer ourselves as living sacrifice. And so this is a high calling, right? This is our whole selves. This is all that we are and all that we have. And Paul says it's true and proper worship. So we should be a little bit like, whoa, this is rather intense. Uh, how do we do that? Uh, but the real, there is some flow to his argument. So if you look at his opening statements, there's kind of a flow. There's three different parts to this jam-packed two verses here. So look how he kicks off. He says, therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercies. So before we get to a responsive worship, Paul is saying, look, we have to look to God's mercies and what he has done uh, on our behalf. He says to look at them, right? To put your gaze upon them, to view them, to continually do that once and, and uh, daily, weekly, monthly, again and again and again, we begin to view the compassions and mercies of God. All right, the gospel, the good news at the heart of the Christian faith is a God who created the entire cosmos and yet wanted to come after you, wanted to have a relationship with you and for you. Uh, and he even gave his one and only son in order to do that. That's what we do as we ponder the Christmas narrative that is at the heart of the story is a God who is willing to give his son. Like, sir, I love you guys. We've been walking together for a good while. I'm not giving any of my kids for you. Like, I'm not. <laughs> Uh, I might give myself, hopefully, ideally, God willing, I would be willing to do that, right? 
but I'm not going to give you my children. And yet God and and the Son of God, Jesus, co-conspired before the creation of the world to do exactly that. And so it's in view of him and in what Jesus is doing for us and and on behalf of us that we then can think about the posture of worship. And and it's really our view of the mercies of God really brings up what do we think about God? Is he great and is he good? Like those are the questions they draw up when we think of the mercies of God. And I would say that our understanding of the goodness and greatness of God is usually in correlation with how well we can see the brokenness in the world and how well we can see our own brokenness, right? Like if the world's hunky-dory, there's not a whole lot of need for God's mercy, right? And, And if our lives are just fine and good, there's again, not a whole lot of need for God's mercies. So the real questions this morning is, you know, have you viewed in your mind's eye Jesus's willing journey to Golgotha, that he would walk towards this place where he would give his life, where he would be bloodied and beaten, mocked and shamed, where he would have his arms outstretched for you, where even as, as uh, the gospel writer Luke says, uh, Jesus said that he was forgiving them, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so as they're killing Jesus, he's doing that. And so have you viewed the mercies of God given to you on the cross? Because that is a life-altering invitation. And so I want to encourage you this morning, immerse yourself in the life of Jesus, allow his mercies to captivate you. Because out of that place, Paul goes to a second part of the argument. Look what he says. He says, here's the call. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What Paul is doing is actually using temple language here. It's temple language, right? And there is a huge shift from the Old Testament. So prior to Jesus, uh, there was a tabernacle and a temple and God resided in, in a physical building, in a physical space where people could bring sacrifices to an altar to be offered by a priest so that forgiveness could be given and unleashed. But there is a shift then that after Christ, Jesus pours out his spirit and he says that every follower of Jesus becomes the new temple and that we collectively are a temple for the living God, for his spirit. And so there's the shift that we would become living sacrifices rather than a dead sacrifice because Jesus is the lamb who died and gave his life once and for all. And so that's the call of the cross is to receive that freely as a gift and to be in awe of those mercies but then to live out an obedient life, to say, God, look what you've done. And so that means our desires, our ambitions, our prayers, our times, our careers, our family life, our money, all these things then, if you're a follower of Jesus, are to be lived as a living sacrifice. Like everything is on the table. Everything is an avenue to love and to trust God and worship him more fully. And so out of that, He gives an all-encompassing call for whole life worship. He also gives a caution. Look what he says next. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, I I could do a whole sermon here. I won't, uh, but I can't help when I think of that word conform to think back to the middle school years for me. Uh, It was just a rough part of life. And uh, I remember walking into a classroom when I was in seventh grade. Uh, I still remember this moment pretty deeply where I sat down and this guy named Michael said, hey, Morgan, like, are you a surfer? I said, no. And and he's like, then why are you wearing surf shirts, man? You know, with like this stone cold, like mocking face. And I'm just, you know, looking back and I was like, hey, Michael, why do you have to sting me so sharply that my 34 year old soul can still feel what happened when I was 13? All right, back off, bro. Like, I don't know. I'm wearing the shirt because it's cool right? 
there's this call to conform. Yes, I didn't surf and I was wearing because I thought it was cool and I got shamed for it, right? Conforming. And uh, I wish all efforts to conform ended uh, when I was 13 years old as a middle schooler, right? But, but I hate to say that I still try to conform in, in all kinds of ways. Uh, currently, I'm being highly pro, uh, impacted by a guy named Mark Sayers out in uh, Melbourne, Australia. Uh, he's got a great newer book called Reappearing Church. And it's really centered on the hope-filled vision for the future of the church, even though it's declining all over the place, especially in the West. Um, but it's only, the hope is only rooted in a very high cost uh, of renewal and revival and radical discipleship. It's only uh, if followers of Jesus will really sell out and do this thing called living as sacrifices. And, and one of his overarching points about Western culture is that it's conforming us to values that are completely opposite of everything Paul says here. Uh, Listen to this statement. He says, the whole of contemporary Western culture, from the structure of our malls and cities to the very fabric of the internet and social media platforms, are ideologies that shape us toward a vision not rooted in the eternal, but in the unlimited freedom and pleasure of the individual. Like most of culture, is telling us to be whoever we want to be and to define that and to fill ourselves with whatever our desires tell us. Like most of the cultural waters that we are swimming in is pointing us that direction. And we hear these words from Paul. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, some of you have been walking with us the last couple of weeks as we've been in this series. We've been doing just a daily psalm reading. Maybe you've been engaging that. I hope you have. It's been really encouraging, uh, really challenging and powerful for me. Um, it is. That, it's a simple rhythm. Right? These are those simple rhythms when we hear God's word, and especially when we, do, when we engage them collectively, like God starts to form us and shape us and help renew our desires, renew our mind. And so it is one of the, the most simple things you can do is to keep he- taking in the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus. Because the overflow, as Paul closes this statement up, he says, then, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Like there's an amazing invitation here. Paul says you can actually increasingly know who God is and know what he's about in the world. Like you don't actually have to not have any clue about who God is and what he's up to. And so the call, the first snapshot here is that you would view the mercies of the living God, that you would offer your bodies, your whole selves lives, your body, your mind, your heart, your soul to him. You would partner with him and that you would know that the big idea of this snapshot is you are called to whole life worship. My check. Oh, hi. <laughs> um, love that. Also, love the fact that he decided to sit on the right where I couldn't grab my guitar without him smacking me. That's right. <laughs> um, I don't do a lot of the speaking thing, so if you'd be patient with my stutters and stammers, I'll do my best. <laughs> Uh, so our second snapshot of worship is is actually found in the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. So if you want to turn there, um, I'm a big fan of the physical Bible as well, so I've got that up here too, and we'll have it on the screen. So uh, I'll go ahead and read this. But first, I wanted to go ahead and like explain what the big idea behind this snapshot is so that I don't get distracted and go down a million different rabbit trails. Uh, so the snapshot of this, like the, the big idea for this snapshot of worship is simply that God invites us to worship him as we are. So let's read the passage. 
says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. For I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew up to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. So I try to put myself in Isaiah's shoes, and I think, well, I know that my, like, just like him, my face would be on the ground, like, the woe to me, like, I'm a dead man, I'm a sinner, and here I stand in, the, in like, the presence of perfection, and I think the difference that I would be tempted to do is just stay down there. I think that's, that, that I know that that is something that I've struggled with for a lot of my life, and honestly, more so this past year. When I first came here, actually over a year ago today, um, which is already crazy to think about. I saw an amazing community. I love all you guys. And I saw wonderful worship But Julia and Kayla that did a great job. And my first thought was just like, this is really good. I don't want to ruin this. So how can, you know, how can I just kind of copy and paste this and like not really allow myself a part of it, just kind of be outside. And in doing that, I honestly forgot my personal sense of worship. And I forgot first that, like, God is the one who brings us to worship. You look throughout the Bible, it's never us that go to him. He initiates our worship of him. He did that on the cross. He gave us access to him. And second, just because, like, the big idea for this, like, I wasn't being myself. I wasn't coming to God and worshiping him as I was. And in doing doing that, I... I mean, I compared myself to this perfect standard and never being satisfied. Like, my depression, my anxieties, my insecurities, they flared up more than my, like, than my entire life. I, I just, I forgot that God wants us as we are. We, like, we are to confess and then to be forgiven and then to accept that that is it. It's whenever the seraphim came up, touched Isaiah's lips with the coals and said, like, you are clean. Like, it's only because Isaiah get, put it all out on the table that the, like, when it was taken from him, the Lord asked, whom shall I send? And Isaiah's hand was in the air. I'd like to turn somewhere else real fast. Um, I promise I'm not getting sidetracked. <laughs> Would you please turn to Psalm 32 with me, verses 3 through 5? It'll be up on the screens. Um, I know I'm also tempted to be lazy and not turn the pages. Uh, so it says, ver- starting in verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I think that's what I've been doing that past year. That verse three, like that that feeling of knowing something that you need to let go of, like the act of not doing it just drains you and wastes you away inside. That's not, that's like what Isaiah didn't do here. 
So reading through Isaiah, like I was reminded of this passage and I started diving into some of the more important, like the, some of the words that were sticking out to me here. And so I, I looked up like the definitions for the Hebrew words, for, for the three words, acknowledge, confess, and forgive. So real fast, like acknowledge is just yada in Hebrew, which just means like to accuse or to take notice of. Basically saying like, hey, this was my fault. I did this. Confess is also yada, just a different spelling. And this just means to, to give, to throw, or to cast. And oddly enough, in this context, it means like to do that and immediately follow with worship of praise and thanksgiving. Kind of like a, whew, I don't have it anymore. And then forgive, which is nasa, which just means to, to lift, to carry, to take the burden of, or oddly enough in this context, uh, to marry which to me just, I, I hear that sense of like, you know, for better or for worse, he becomes one with us. So I see this, I see this, this like lining up with the verses from Isaiah where, you know, where the psalmist says, I, I, I acknowledged or I accused myself of my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. Isaiah says, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Where the psalmist says, I said, I will throw my sin on you and, and like thank you and praise you. Isaiah says, I have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When the psalmist says, and you lifted the burden like, and took ownership, you became one with me through better or for worse through in my sin. Isaiah, like that's where the seraphim said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. One of the biggest moments for this entire year for me is down in Morgan's basement at seven in the morning. And we'd all come in with our own crap that we were carrying, something that we weren't willing to let go of and just confessing, like just putting it all out there and then getting on our knees and praying and like receiving the forgiveness and grace of God. I have never been more dedicated to a group of men than I have in that moment. So that's like, that is why when God asks, whom shall I send? Isaiah's hand is in the air. Because Isaiah gave God everything. He came to God exactly as he was, going to him with all of his crap, with all of his sin, all of his guilt, all of his shame, like everything, and God took it. Like that is the example for what we get to do. Like God wants you. And when he bought you at the price of his life, he brought every dark pit you'd ever be in, every addiction, every struggle, every broken relationship, because he loves you. He gave you his son and his spirit at the price of his life because he loves you and he wants you closer to him. The only question left after that is just, is there something that you're still holding on to? Is there something that is wasting you away inside because you're afraid to let it go? God invites us to worship him as we are and where we are. Our next snapshot of worship, like I couldn't, I didn't feel right talking about worship without talking about community. You know, why we're here this morning and, well, why Morgan and I have a job. <laughs> um, and thinking about it, I couldn't think of a better example than Acts 2. So can we flip there real fast? I'm going to do the same so I can, like, time how long it takes. Um, Acts 2, 42 through 47, and I'll go ahead and read that when I get there. <laughs> uh, so it says... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. 
They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So this snapshot of worship is through the idea of unity. So the big idea here for like this snapshot of worship is that we can better understand and show the image of God when we worship together. You know, it was because the body of believers devoted themselves to God and to each other that they had everything in common, that they enjoyed the favor of all people, that, that, that they praised God and why their numbers were added to daily. Like that's the way we were designed. Let's go back to Genesis 1 where God says, let us make man in our image. And even in the next chapter, like, it's the first time in all creation and the only time in the creation narrative where God says something is not good when he sees Adam alone. In doing that, he, he kind of recognized, like, yes, it would, be perf- it, it would have been perfect if it was just Adam and God, because the love of God and the power of God, it is all perfect. But Adam was better able to understand the love of God through loving and being loved by someone else. I don't have kids. Thank the Lord. I don't have kids yet. (laughs) They're cute, but they're icky and gross. (laughs) But I've watched how my parents raised me. And, like, they fought for me. They took on burdens and pains. They sacrificed time and money and and hurt for me. They've never once asked for, for, like, payback or for a return on investment just because they love me. How much more has Christ done the same for us? You know, I've seen us come together as a community to support those in need, those lacking, those hurting. How much more has Christ done the same? When we come together, we show each other the grace and love and mercy of God, of Jesus Christ. And that helps us, like, it helps shape how we interact with and worship God. It's through love and through that unchangeable fact that like nothing we have in our lives is ours, including the relationships we have. I think that Diedrich Bonhoeffer sums it up well in his book, Life Together, when he says this. He says, so long as we eat our bread together, we shall have sufficient even with the least, not until one person desires to keep his own bread for himself does hunger ensue. That idea that like nothing we have is ours, that if we share it, then we'll all have what we need. Because we don't own what we have. It's like when we try to, like, we have to accept that nothing we have is ours. And when we try to change that is when we fall down a very slippery slope that leads to sin and struggle and spiritual death. But the Acts Church didn't just devote themselves to each other. They also devoted to God together. They did that through so many more ways than just gathering together on a Sunday morning and hearing, hearing a sermon. Even, like, they did do that. Like, they listened to the apostles' teaching. But they also prayed and ate and broke bread and lived life together. The, the, like, they also praised God together. And there's a reason why, like, there's, there's a reason why we sing songs when we gather together. There's a reason I have a job. <laughs> um, it's, it's through this, like, it, you know, it's one thing to, to, for me to speak to you. It's one thing for us to chant the same uh, creed together. But, like, music just adds that extra element. 
It was this thing that the ancient Greeks uh, actually had figured out millennia before they could prove it. It was the idea of musica, humana, mandana, and instrumentalis. Basically, just that everything in creation, every cell, every plant, every animal, every person, every mountain, every planet, moves to its own what they called music. Or more scientifically, like everything moves in its own frequency and is affected by the frequency of that everything else moves around it. That's why, you know, you can listen to sad music when you're sad. You can listen to aggressive music when you're mad. If you're ridiculous, you listen to Christmas music well before Black Friday. And that's also why you can walk into a funeral and feel the grief in the room without anybody saying a word. Like, that is exactly how it was designed. Music adds this thing that words cannot explain. And when we sing that together, like, scientifically, when we're all singing the same words to the same song in the same place, we start to sync up together. I think that, again, Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, really explains this well, and he says this. He asks, why do Christians sing when they are together? The reason is, quite simply, because in singing together, it is possible for them to speak and pray the same word at the same time. In other words, because here they can unite in the word. All devotion, all attention should be concentrated upon the word in the hymn. The fact that we do not speak it but sing it only expresses the fact that our spoken words are inadequate to express what we want to say. That the burden of our song goes far beyond all human words. Yet we do not hum a melody. We sing words of praise to God, words of thanksgiving, confession, and prayer. Thus, the music is completely the servant of the word. It eludicates the word and its mystery. You know, when we, when we sing praises to God together, we create this unity that spiritually and biologically brings us together, putting us on the same page and syncing up, syncing us all up with the words that we proclaim when we sing songs praising God and devoting ourselves to him. We become the singular body of Christ. When that happens, the worship that like from those with spiritual abundance gets poured out onto those with spiritual need. We all sync up and we share this experience together and it's wonderful because like that spreads out the power of worshiping God so that even those who aren't far along in their spiritual journey can be filled up and even those with abundance in their souls can pour out to be filled again. Like we better show and understand the image of God when we worship together. So for our fourth uh, snapshot, uh, turn over to Luke 1. You know, we want to see one of the kind of birth narratives uh, as we point uh, to the incarnation and to God coming into the earth. And in Luke chapter 1, Mary, prior, prior to this, has been visited by an angel. She's told that she's going to bear the child, Jesus, the Son of God, and raise him. So quite the message, quite the calling. And uh, shortly thereafter, she goes and visits uh, Elizabeth, her cousin. And uh, her cousin has not yet, they haven't seen face to face in a while. And yet her cousin, as soon as Mary comes up, she speaks this prophetic word over her. Uh, she encourages her, and, and it just really confirms for Mary everything that God had just done. And so out of that overflow, we see in verse 46 of chapter 1, it says this. Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. 
He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. There's so much in this. It's called Mary's song. But the overarching theme is the upside-down nature of God's kingdom and God's ways. Right? God simply does not do things the way we expect God to do them. And I don't mean to demean Mary, but she's, you know, essentially a nobody from nowhere, right? Like, she's like, I have little money, has no prestige, no popularity. She's never going to make the Fortune 500 lists. To use her language, she says she's in this humble state. She's very overlooked as a woman, first of all, and then secondly, as a Palestinian woman in that culture. It's not, there's nothing pointing in her direction, but not by God. Like, God saw her. And God saw a faithful woman who was taking care of the Son of God. It's a mind-blowing reality. And, and as I thought about this song, again, there's so many things to say. Uh, but I really just sense like the Lord had something for some of us in the room uh, who might be hurting right now. Like some of us who might not be, you know, rah-rah, excited about the Christmas season. For many people, the, the, the Christmas or holiday season are really rough. They can be some of the most lonely and, and anxiety-producing and, and hurtful. And, and all the, the things going on in your life can really be even just kind of amplified, right? And so if you're in a tough place, a lot of the times the holidays are not this great thing. And yet I really just sense the Lord wanting to say, like, he sees you. And so if you're in that place of hurting for whatever reason, the narrative of Mary's song is that he sees you. That God sees your pain and your anguish, even the stuff you're not yet sharing with anyone. God wants to draw near to you with those mercies, the mercies that we tried to view just a touch this morning with his love for you. And really the invitation of Mary's song, the invitation of a worshiping community is that it just may be some of the healing balm for your soul this morning. That, that as you come as you are, that as you cry out in, in song and in prayer, uh, with anguish, with crying, with whatever it is that God puts on your heart in this time as we're about to shift into some of our, into the time of extended worship, uh, that God wants to heal you. He wants to speak to you, that he wants to move in your midst. And, and so Mary acknowledges the humble state of her life. Like the first step is her going like, look, this makes no sense. So the acknowledgement is a real key. But her opening words of the song are all just as key. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He wants to encounter you this morning. And the word from the Lord is just simply don't stay isolated. Like glorify him, honor him, sing to him, cry out to him, bring to him whatever it is. That is on you because he sees you. Now, uh, we've done four snapshots of worship from Scripture, but we have a, a final snapshot. And it's more kind of in the flesh. Uh, we've navigated these, but it's the snapshot of months of disciple-making activity. Uh, something that we hold dearly around here at Serve is that we believe God wants us to unleash waves of, of, of disciple-making disciples, people who are taking seriously the words from Jesus in the Great Commission. And so we've got a good friend. Uh, I'd like to invite Brent up here, who many of you know, and then Ethan, who maybe some of you don't know. So why don't you guys make your way up here. Brent and Ethan have been walking together in what we call a discipleship huddle for about 18 months. And uh, Ethan is now being ready. Uh, he is ready to re be released to go and make other disciples. And we are just so thankful for him. And we're going to turn things over to Brent to tell a little bit of that story and, and to speak some words over him and to pray over him. Thanks, Morgan. 
Uh, so my good friend Ethan here, he and his wife Kara are here, and they actually used to live right across the street from the church. Um, so God put us um, in each other's paths probably about five years ago, thereabouts. And Ethan and I have had the, the privilege of just walking together for the last 16 months through a discipleship group. And, you know, three words came to mind when I think about Ethan. I think faithful, I think servant, and I think caring. Um, he exhibits those things every day. And, you know, it's just been such a, uh, an exciting journey to see him grow in his faith. And his, his growth in boldness, his growth in confidence, his growth in obedience, um, it's been awesome to see that. So uh, this morning, it's so exciting to kind of commission him and release him as he invests now in other men and helps them on their journeys. Um, I do want to read... So Romans 15, 13, this is Paul writing, and he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, the word that stood out through that passage is overflow of hope. And, you know, my prayer for Ethan as he invests in other men is his overflow of hope would be evident to them. And all that's fueled by the Holy Spirit. And so uh, just happy to uh, be here with Ethan this morning. I'm going to uh, say a quick prayer for him and just so grateful for uh, he and his family. Lord God, we are grateful for all that you do in us and through us. And this morning, I want to lift up Ethan to you uh, my dear brother and dear friend, I just, I pray that the people that you're going to put in his path would be moved by him through the power of your Holy Spirit. Just connect him with the people where you're already at work. Help him to join forces with you as we try to make uh, disciples of you, Lord. All these things in your name we pray, amen. Thanks for checking in to the Serve Community Church podcast. If you're interested in more information on how to connect with our community, feel led to support us in any way you can or have any further questions, check us out online on social medias like Facebook or Instagram or at our website at servecc.org.